Welcome to the Innovation and in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month, we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now, here's your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Travis Rosick, the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Blue Vector. Travis, welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Jason. Uh, pleasure to be with you today. Let me set just a little bit of context for our discussion. The rash of cyber attacks on agencies and private sector organizations will continue to rise. We know that that's a fact. Just looking at the attack flavor of the year, like ransomware, recent studies have found that ransomware attacks rose 62% worldwide and 158% in North America in 2020 alone. The FBI received nearly 2,500 ransomware complaints in 2020, up, from, up about 20% from 2019. Now, this has led to an increased cost for agencies and organizations alike. Some estimate that companies across the globe paid more than $20 billion in 2021 to deal with ransomware. That's a 57-fold increase since 2015. Cybercrime overall cost companies across the globe an estimated $6 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars, and that cost is expected only to increase in the future. This year is more than just ransomware. Attacks against mobile devices are increasing. Phishing attacks are becoming more sophisticated, and new vectors like crypto jacking are becoming a more popular approach by bad actors. To combat this ever-increasing cyber threat, agencies are spending more money than ever. In, in the fiscal 2022 budget request working its way through Congress today, civilian agencies requested $9.8 billion. That would be a 14% increase over 2021. The Defense Department says its cybersecurity budget request in 2022 is $10.4 billion, bringing the total cyber spending above $20 billion government-wide for the first time. But it's more than just money that's needed. It's also people, it's better data. So for how agencies can take advantage of the people, the data, and the technology to keep bad actors at bay, we turn back to Travis Rosick, the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Blue Vector. Travis, I laid out the, the scariness of cybersecurity, but how do you see what the state of cybersecurity is today? Help me understand what we're looking at and, and where agencies and others are going. Sure, uh, obviously uh, kind of a very scary introduction. <laughs> so definitely uh, spent many nights awake thinking about this problem over the years. Um, hence some of the gray hairs that I have or lack of hair. So, you know, I think that, you know, taking a macro level view of the problem in the cyber domain, it's always been a cat and mouse game, right? So the adversaries are always constantly trying to find gaps or the gray space for the organizations or cyber, uh, you know, cyber defenders, right? They're trying to figure out where's the weakness in people, processes, and technologies, and they navigate in that gray space. So, you know, they don't have to follow any rules where we have a laundry list of compliance requirements, regulatory requirements, privacy concerns uh, that that lit really limit um, acquisition law that you know really. Uh, impedes the speed of detection and response in the cyber domain. So, you know, everything is stacked up against the cyber defenders. They have to be right every time. Uh, on the uh, cyber adversary side, they just have to be lucky or get right once. And they can, they can live in this gray space and have a lot more freedom. So this cat and mouse game uh, has been going on for 20 or 30 years in, in the cyberspace. Uh, from a perspective, ransomware isn't really anything different than we faced before from a technology perspective. So it, it is just another piece of rants or another piece of malware. The adversary is getting access to a system and they're executing their code. Uh, in the past, it was predominantly cyber espionage, stealing information, secrets, intellectual property, and using that for their advantage. Uh, what we've seen now is the monetization of that uh, with ransomware, um, you know, anonymization with cryptocurrency and other things. Uh, paying the ransom actually helps them uh, advance themselves, right? It's kind of the Silicon Valley of the cyber domain. You know, all these ransom payments, they're innovating, they're scaling, 
you know, it, it's, um, uh, we're creating a worse problem, right? So, so the, the intent is different. The motive of the cyber threat actor is different, but when it gets down to the science piece of it or the technical side of it, you know, it's just, they're executing code and instead of copy and pasting the data, um, you know, they're, they're destroying it or holding it hostage. So, you know, I think as much as we like to get alarmed with ransomware, we should be equally alarmed with malware or any compromise because it's really up to the adversary and there's a human on the other side and it's, it's really up to their motive. You bring up this idea of it used to be stealing data and now it's holding hostage. And I remember years ago, the retired general Keith Alexander, when he was head of NSA mentioned disruption, uh, how, how cyber attacks are going to be disruptive. And we all were like, really, what do you mean by that? And it was, it was news back in, I don't know, 2012, 2013 timeframe, it feels like. And now we're seeing it come to fruition is this disruption. Is that really the key term that you and that when those of you live in the cyber world every day are, are seeing is, is the, the attacks are more disruptive and, and more harmful? Again, not death in that sense, but more harmful to the systems, to the organization, to the agency? So I think, you know, it's definitely pushing the limits, right? So they're, they're getting more brazen. Um, we've seen with the, the pipeline attack and the, the broad impact, the food supply. Um, I, I mean, for the last several years, um, you know, municipalities, local police departments, uh, hospitals, you know, I mean, I, I would say it is life and death, right? Everything is dependent on cyber these days. You know, there are cases or studies where um, a destructive malware attack, you know, such as ransomware has prevented, um, you know, closed hospitals because they don't have access to records and they have to transfer patients. So adding that extended time for transferring a heart attack patient or, or others to a different hospital that does have, you know, their cyber systems up and running, uh, that delay, uh, you know, I, I think there has been studies that confirm that it has killed people. Um, so it, it is a life and death matter. Uh, and I think the destructive nature of it is really back to that motive. But I, I would also say there are other implications from a cyber threat actor that uh, it you know it's not really public knowledge or widely known today uh, but there's other things that the adversary could do on these systems um, that are even more impactful um, that you know do keep me up at night these days so you know it's as bad as we think destructive malware and ransomware is today uh, it could definitely get worse oh, and i think a lot of people are worried about getting worse so that leads us actually down that good path of okay what can be done today to be maybe more proactive so knowing that the things will get worse and before maybe they get better what are some of the things agencies can do uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. Um, so, you know, going back to my uh, my background, I, I spent uh, you know ten years as a, a GS uh, government civilian in the DoD, um, supporting cybersecurity programs and in, in various missions over the years, uh, incident response, red teaming, um, running enterprise-wide cybersecurity programs, uh, looking at security operations. Uh, probably my most rewarding or uh, interesting role was creating a branch focused on uh, doing studies. So collecting metrics, analyzing cyber metrics across the department. Uh, and basically proactively, uh, we called it measuring the cyber readiness of the forces. Uh, and on the reactive side, post breach, we would go in and do uh, like NTSB like uh, investigations. So, you know, the adversary was successful in this environment. You know, was it a breakdown in, you know, people process technologies, was there training gaps? Uh, and making recommendations, whether it be, uh, you know, part of the outcomes where we wrote playbooks for cyber command for defensive cyber operations, maybe it's um, 
new funding to go out and uh, create new training programs to fill those gaps. Maybe it was uh, security configurations or new procurement requirements uh, as a result of that. So, uh, so that was a very uh, interesting and, and rewarding type of work. So, you know, I, I think some of the things that we found were, you know, it was uh, a little bit of everything, but predominantly it was the organizations are overly reactive. So they wait for something bad to happen and they respond to it. Uh, that time to do the triage of the event is way too long in the cyber domain. The adversaries are very cunning and their capabilities are much more sophisticated that they clean up their tracks rather quickly. Um, you know, they use fileless based attacks where they don't leave tracks, um, traces of them in logs and other data. So they emulate and look like uh, internal IT staff. So they can come in and conduct their mission and, and look, um, look very benign. So it makes it much more difficult for the cyber defenders to respond. Uh, so we call that dwell time. So the uh, security operations have to do faster triage times, uh, reduce that dwell time so they can prevent that impact or collateral damage, we called it. I love the idea of uh, NTSB investigations. You're starting to see some discussion in the Cyberspace Solarium Commission talked about this idea of a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. I know there's been some discussion around this very similar NTSB type approach to, to major cyber attacks. It, to be proactive, to be to to get to reduce that dwell time, what is, is this? It's a it's a people process technology uh, challenge. So if you just briefly maybe offer a little bit of of each of those, how can they, what the people side, the process side, the technology side to reduce that dwell time, how would they go about that? Yeah, absolutely. So from a, a uh, we'll start, we'll go in the reverse order. So from a technology perspective, regardless of, um, you know, so co compliance um, lags what the cyber threat actors are able to do. So there, there's advanced cybersecurity controls that are in NIST guidance and, and uh, DUD guidance and, and other, you know, um, organizations. However, a lot of the more um, sophisticated or advanced controls uh, are, are optional, right? The recommendations and guidance. So, you know, I, I think from, in general, the bare minimum is very heavily dependent on signature-based detection, threat intel-based detection, which means that the, the attack has to happen. Somebody has to analyze it, create signatures, and they have to be propagated. Uh, and it has to be 100% coverage to be successful. As we all know, you know there is no 100% uh, of anything in the cyber domain. Most organizations can't tell you 100% confidence how many systems or users are on their network. So, uh, from a uh, you know uh, that aspect is very reactive. So the ability to detect threats without signatures, the ability to not have to wait for that time for analysis and propagation. Uh, especially in the disruptive malware world, uh, is, is super critical. So, so trying to do better detection uh, without signatures, do it faster, um, allows cyber defenders to have a chance, uh, especially in the destructive uh, malware world. Uh, from a process perspective, every security operations center I've ever been to, uh, public and private sector, uh, they're short-staffed, uh, there's high turnover rates, they're burned out, uh, and they're all drowning in events. So. There's a huge big data problem uh, in this cyberspace. Uh, if you just look at um, you know, network data, endpoint data, you know, every possible device that's out there, mobile devices, they all generate a massive amount of logs, event data, uh, and cybersecurity analysts have to figure out how to make sense of that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the cybersecurity tools today are black boxes. So they tell you if something's good or bad, 
uh, or they tell you if something's bad, but they don't really tell you any context about why, or if they saw something, they weren't sure about it. Um, they, they really limit that context and exposure. So if you have this big mountain of data, everything is kind of siloed or it doesn't have a lot of context. From a cyber um, analyst perspective, it's really hard to do really good correlation because you don't have enough insight about why a specific product or tool made a determination um, and things that didn't analyze or think was malicious, there's no record of that data anyway. So if, if you're living in the more sophisticated threat actor space, um, they're gonna focus in that space. So from a security operation perspective, you know, I mean, my time in that space, I probably spent 90 some percent of my time looking at false positives, which was probably one of the most uh, unrewarding uh, parts of my career. <laughs> and on the people side, you know, I kind of mentioned a little bit, there's a huge uh, work, uh, workforce shortage. Um, there is high turnover rates. So unfortunately, uh, the, the cybersecurity environment is so complicated now that spending time in an organization, understanding uh, in the commercial world, the business critical systems, how they should operate, how they should act, you know, what's really critical for the business and what normal looks like. Uh, in the government side, it's more mission critical systems, right? So what, what's the minimum things we can, we have to have operational um, to be cyber resilient. So if you have high turnover rates in these positions, the cybersecurity analysts don't have enough insights into the environment or those critical environments about normal. Uh, so that's, that's one aspect of the problem. Uh, there's a ramp up time for them to learn all of these tools and there's just, uh, you know, it's more complex, um, there's more tools. And if they're not intuitive, they become, you know, it, it's much more difficult. So, so one aspect and some of the things we try to work on at Blue Vector is uh, better threat detection, uh, faster, you know, millisecond based detection, um, some of the leading edge around using machine learning and other non-signature based detection techniques to detect threats that have never been seen before, but also generating a lot of rich context about why we've made decisions of something being malicious um, or, or benign. Um, and then from a cyber workforce perspective, we try to create and visualize the data in a way that's very intuitive. So a, no a novice analyst can come in and look at something and with a little bit of training can say, yep, that's definitely bad or you know, this, this looks pretty good. So, so I think those are the three big areas and those are some of the things my government career and post-government career have been really focused on uh, trying to resolve. All right, you set us up perfect for the next segment, but first we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll dive into some of the things like machine learning and uh, non-signature based uh, threat detection. But first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to the discussion, Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. The volume of cyber attacks against our nation has never been higher, threats never more lethal, the security risks never greater. Blue Vector developed AI technology to detect and hunt down the most advanced and evasive cyber threats for critical government agencies. Blue Vector offers custom solutions specifically for operators on the front lines of cybersecurity, tailored to strengthen the defenses of any size enterprise. Blue Vector, we detect threats others don't. Visit bluvector.io. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Travis Rosick, the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Blue Vector. Now, Travis, before break, you opened the door for us to talk about why machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the like is, are, is so becoming more important for cyber defenders. So let's just start there. Why is it becoming more important, and, and how can they start to use that to, if you will, break through some of this big data problem that, that everyone's facing? Yeah, absolutely, <clears throat> and uh, uh, great question. So artificial intelligence and machine learning applied to cybersecurity is really important for, for many reasons. Uh, so 
sp speed of detection, as we're seeing with um, the sophistication of cyber threat actors, uh, the, the capability or ability for them to be more destructive in their motives and intents. Um, in many cases, organizations aren't able to recover after you know, a destructive type of malware attack. So the faster you can detect it, uh, the faster you can mitigate or prevent the, the scale and the scope of the damage uh, is incredibly important. So, so the machine learning piece of it, it really applies to that. So as we're seeing with uh, reactive-based cybersecurity, uh, security that relies heavily on signature detection, uh, you know, for targeted attacks, I think the half-life for a malicious sample is, is measured in seconds. So for a targeted attack, a signature is only going to be able to stop that attack, uh, you know, within the first minute or less. So they're going to recompile their tools and have uh, an attack profile that there isn't a known signature for to block or mitigate it. So the evolution, you know, from signatures, sandboxing was kind of the next evolution of, of non-signature based detection. But, you know, because that takes minutes or hours uh, for cloud-based sandboxes or on-premise sandboxes to return results, um, it, it still isn't fast enough for destructive malware. Uh, so the, the application of machine learning allows that an analysis of unknown content uh, to be rendered and a decision about whether it be benign or malicious can occur in, in milliseconds, but which is, is uh, timely enough to be actionable and, and minimize that impact. Also going back to, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in the conversation, every SOC security operations center uh, is drowning in events and, you know, trying to figure out how you do alert prioritization. Uh, you can automate some of that work by leveraging machine learning. So uh, Blue Vector has been working on some research projects and productizing this new capability around automated threat hunting, which does some of the automatic triage of events and, and data to help do some of that better prioritization. Um, and, and that's really the scale and the scope and the speed of cyber uh, these days. Uh, machine learning is going to be critical going forward. Now you can't, uh, the, I, I can't, um, I don't want to take away from, you have to have skilled analysts and people in the loop. It's, it's uber critical. Uh, they just need to have these types of tools to be able to make them more effective. I think the tools piece is, is so important, but as you mentioned, so is the workforce side. Is that maybe the biggest consideration agencies need to really keep in mind as they bring in these tools? Yes, it's great to have them and they can do so much, but if your folks can't use them, then what good are they? I mean, that's true for almost any tool, right? Uh, absolutely. So I think... You know, some of the pain point that I experienced in my government career and, you know, I, uh, that was on one side of the fence now as uh, in the commercial world or as a vendor, you know, I, I've seen the other side of the fence around the acquisition process. And as a govy and somebody on the procurement side of things, you know, getting somebody in cyber operations to write technical requirements for procurement, uh, it was almost like a prison sentence. <laughs> it was, you know, they felt like they were, um, you know, uh, they didn't have appreciation for the importance of that role. And I certainly didn't back in the day. Uh, and it, it was, you know, an in, interesting dynamic, but, but essentially, you know, if, if the requirements don't have the right level of technical specification and requirements understanding of the problem, uh, you know, from a procurement acquisition decision perspective, it's really hard to evaluate what's good and bad. So, so understanding in that acquisition process, you know, um, source selection, really understanding what machine learning is, you know, for example, how do you even build a test plane and test it? So, you know, for example, if, if you're really testing the effectiveness of machine learning, say for detecting malware, you know, you can't go to a, a known repository of known malware and use that for testing because that defeats the purpose. <laughs> so, you know, having test plans that are 
you know, legitimate and for these new complicated solutions is, you know, is, is not trivial. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really important across the board. The training, the acquisition side, I didn't think we we're going to get into the acquisition side of this. So, so I'm happy to go down that path a little bit, but you're right. I mean, you, you can't have, you have to have the acquisition folks understand what they're buying and the technical folks keep it simple enough that they understand what they're buying so they can make the good source selection decision. Are you seeing that starting to happen with government customers? Are you, when you, when, when Blue Vector talks to your customers and others, do they recognize that both A, machine learning and artificial intelligence is really going to be helpful for us, but B, do we know how to use it? Are we prepared to use it? Are we prepared to buy it? <clears throat> so I think, it's a little bit all over the board. So, you know, some fully understand it. I mean, uh, you know, there's organizations that can create malware on the fly. They can use that for testing. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is um, they don't really understand how machine, the different types of machine learning and how they're applied to problems. You know, it's a buzzword. So they think they're buying machine learning, uh, you know, for, from what I try to educate people is, you know, you're buying a capability that just happens to have a uh, machine learning component that helps it do its job, right? But, you're, you know, you're not, I'm, I'm going to go out and buy machine learning to solve cybersecurity. That's not really the, you know, the, the right understanding of, of the technology or the application of the science. Yeah, it's like, the, we're, we'll get to this in a minute, but zero trust, I'm going to go buy me some zero trust. Uh, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> it, it's a concept. It's not a thing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you brought up this topic as well earlier, and I want to tag back to it, is, is the signature. Now, we've heard a lot of criticism over the years of the DHS uh, Einstein program because it's too signature-based. And I think some of that's a misunderstanding of, of what Einstein's supposed to be, but we won't go down that path. But a lot of the cyber world is focused on the signature. And, and you're right, signature is very reactive. And for agencies to be more proactive, that also opens the door to the threat intelligence sharing. What are you seeing around these two kind of long-term challenges around cybersecurity is understanding the signatures also then sharing them more quickly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So yeah, I think I've been on both sides of the fence, you know, security operator, uh, practitioner, and then on, on the per services and vendor side of the world. Yeah, I've, I've seen it, you know, from different angles, public and private sector. Uh, so from a, a threat intel signature based sharing, uh, I mean, it's, it's the fastest way to detect a threat. It's the most, um, surgical way to detect a known threat and, and have context about it. The challenge is the adversaries have changed over the last several years such that they create tools and capabilities that evade signature-based detection. You know, and many times they have ways to get access or test against tools to see if they will even be detected or not before they use them in the wild. So trying to create signatures, you know, it's kind of like fighting the last battle or the last war, right? So I, I, I kind of, um, use the analogy or scenario that, you know, this type of um, mitigation is like driving your car by only looking in your rearview mirror, right? And your the attempt is to dodge potholes. So um, uh, in that reactive world, so uh, some of the things um, actually uh, in one of the meetings and presenting with the uh, uh, Cybersecurity Solarium Commission, um, I, you know, I provided some feedback that, you know, security programs in general need to be more proactive and less reliant on the signature you know, straight up signature sharing, right? Being able to share things that have longer half-lives than, than a regular signature for like a file hash or something like that uh, is really what's needed uh, going forward. So for example, if, if the government organizations uh, worked with industries, they could create uh, machine learning classifiers for malware. Um, you know, uh, for example, Blue Vector's machine learning engines can detect threats without updates for, you know, years in advance. 
So they can create signatures or tailor them for specific environments. And those things have a half-life of months, if not years. So sharing things like that from public to private sector, where the half-life is much longer than, a, than 50 some seconds that you know, targeted attacks and malware signatures last today uh, is, is really the, the, the battle we should be facing, right? That's driving your car looking through the front windshield. And you know, you're gonna be much more successful dodging potholes. And the signatures are still valuable, but because yes. a lot of times, I think it was something like I heard 80% of the time, the hackers are, are going after known holes because people don't patch them. But it's, it is also looking forward to know what's the next thing that they're going after that I need to be aware of. Uh, Travis, I want to switch this over to zero trust because I think that's the buzzword we're hearing across a lot of, of, of government and the private sector, the move to zero trust. Just give me some initial thoughts on where agencies are heading and, and not just why it's important. I think we know why, but how, how can they actually achieve that type of architecture? Yes, no, absolutely. So as your earlier comment, it's, you know, it's not a thing, it's, it's a concept or process. You can't buy it in a box. Uh, so you know, there, there are a lot of um, practical challenges of implementing zero trust uh, architecture at, at uh, large scale. Uh, but but it's, in essence, the principle is you, know, you don't trust the, the users in your environment or the systems. You have to put them through a lot of scrutiny before you give them access to data. Uh, you know, validating if they have the need to, to know or, or have the right to access that data as well. So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in, in, in a large architecture like this. It has a lot of complexity. Um, I, I think just fundamentally, a lot of organizations maybe don't know um, how many, you know, in my, in my experience, they don't know how many systems are on the network. Um, you know, when uh, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff asked how many computers are on the, the DOD networks, <laughs> and it was, you know, plus or minus tens of thousands, right? So, so you know, Looking at that problem many years ago, you know, we've, we've gotten much better there. Uh, but from a zero trust perspective, it's a similar type of challenge. You know, where's the data on those systems? What's the content of that data? Uh, and then what users should have access? So there's a lot of components around it. But I, I think validating identity before they have access to the data um, is definitely important. Uh, continuous monitoring from a security perspective. Uh, you know, if, if a system or user account is compromised, you know, they, you know, definitely prevent them from getting access. So a lot of great things in the, in the principle and the architecture. Uh, but, you know, some of the gaps are some of the things that, that I've um, uh, speak about is there's also malicious attacks occur by, you know, malware. Uh, so if the adversary can't get uh, still credentials or get uh, guess a password through social engineering, you know, the other mechanism they're going to use for attacks is some kind of malicious code or malicious logic. So, uh, Implementing zero trust architecture in an environment that's potentially compromised, it has a, a you know, decades amount of data already in it. How much of that data is already compromised? How do you build trust in the data? So one aspect I think is overlooked with zero trust architecture is actually having trust in the data. So a trusted user or a trusted system um, you know, may check all the boxes from a policy enforcement perspective, but the data they're sending me um, you know, must be extra scrutinized and go through something that um, you know, it, it, you know if, if a trusted user can easily spend, send me a spearfished email with something malicious or, you know, some other mechanism. So I think, I think the, the data aspect of zero trust is something that doesn't get enough attention, and I, I feel that it should. I think those are points that we could talk much, much more longer about, but unfortunately, Travis, we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest. Travis Rosick is the Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Blue Vector. Travis, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search innovation. 
Thank you for listening to the Innovation and in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com, keyword innovation. There are nearly 2 billion websites in the world. But there's only one that matters to the federal IT community. Welcome to AskTheCIO.com, the longest-running program on federal IT, featuring Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. AskTheCIO.com, exclusive CIO and IT decision-maker interviews, breaking news,